and welcome to episode 43 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 6th of August 2018. I'm Joe, and with me are Graham. Hello. And Alan. Hello. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> I'm some guy off the internet that you found on Telegram. The internet's Alan Pope, yes. So Phelim has got some family shit to deal with, and Will is uh, in agony having had his wisdom teeth out. So I asked Popey to come along. You may know him from such podcasts as the Ubuntu podcast. Uh, and you sometimes on Linux Unplugged as well. But yes, very much appreciated for you joining us. No worries. Uh, there's going to be another guest later on as well, but we'll get to that in a bit. First, let's do some news. And news that makes you very happy, Alan, is that uh, Lenovo are being added to the Linux vendor firmware service. I just know it as LVFS. That's all I know it as the thing that uh, Richard Hughes maintains. Uh, and it's um, something that has been not super like well known within the community that this thing exists and it, and it, what it does, but it's uh, super useful because it enables us to update firmware for devices within our computers and external peripherals as well which you know for those of you who've been around linux for a long time will know that often you have to uh, boot into windows to update firmware and bioses and stuff like that so having something that enables you to do those kind of updates from within linux uh, from the desktop is awesome and lenovo have joined the club and how many of your ThinkPads are supported by this then? Uh, I don't know, actually. All 16? I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, not rolled out to every device yet. So I think this is just an early announcement to say it's supported, I, I guess, because people would start seeing Lenovo firmwares show up in there. So they did the announcement, and then I think more and more devices will roll out as time goes on. Does this mean that we can install spyware from our desktop? I don't think the Linux builds of any of these Lenovo laptops have ever had any spyware on them. But then again, they don't ship laptops with <laughs> Linux on them. So, you know, that's probably why. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't in firmware or anything, was it? That was just additional bloatware that comes on Windows machines. I don't know. I, I'm sure I read that in some of the uh, laptop dodgy software, you know, vendor software, they've been known to write stuff very early in the boot process in order to stay on your system, like even if you try and remove them, which I'm not sure Lenovo were one of those of a vague recollection, but I don't keep an eye on that kind of stuff because I don't run Windows on it. Yeah, I seem to remember a similar thing. I suppose that's what I was referring to. Yeah, well, it's good that there's more vendors signing up to this. If they all did, then it would make it easier for um, Linux generally, wouldn't it? As you say, not having to boot into Windows or like DOS or whatever to try and flash various firmware and everything. Yeah, I, I know Richard has done a lot of work behind the scenes with not just Lenovo, but other vendors as well. Um, he's got a, a big table, uh, on the LVFS website that lists all the companies that he's spoken to or is currently speaking to and their responses. And sometimes they've been negative. Like more recently, the flare up with system 76 comes to mind, but others have been positive like this one and Dell and, uh, eight bit do or eight bit do or whatever you want to call them. The people who make, um, little controllers, retro controllers, uh, those can be updated via, uh, gnome software and LVFS too, which is really, really cool. All right. Well, let's move on and talk about Slackware and the lead dev of that Patrick Volkering posted on the Linux questions forum about how he is being getting screwed over by the Slackware store and he hasn't seen any money from it for a long time and they've basically ripped him off and he's basically skint and his house is falling to bits and whatnot and that's not very good is it and 
he has got a PayPal link now for people to donate to him. He's talked about setting up a Patreon. I haven't seen whether that's actually happened yet. I don't think so. And yet again, it's an example of software devs not being that good with their finances. Yeah, especially as um, he had a mechanism for generating some income, um, which was a very good mechanism and the idea of the store. And it's a great shame that it's gone this way because we've all discussed at various points in the past how free software open source developers can generate some kind of income from what they do. And this seemed like a good way of doing it. Just trusting someone else maybe wasn't the right thing to do, but that's another thing we've always discussed. Who do you trust? Yeah, and it's difficult if you don't have some kind of organization. I mean, more recently, some of the newer distros have put in place you know, either foundations or councils and structures in place to manage the project and manage things like finances. But this thing's been around since yeah, the Stone Age, and maybe it never occurred to them to do that back then. And over the subsequent years, it's never occurred to them. You know, it ran on goodwill. Yeah, it's 25 years old, isn't it? It's as old as Jurassic Park. Wow. Funnily enough. Yeah, which um, it's the oldest active Linux distro. Debian's slightly younger than it. So, it, yeah, that does show that it's been around for a long time. And maybe they just never sorted that stuff out. Hopefully... People will give him loads of money and that will give him a bit of a cushion and then he'll be able to sort out some proper um, way to manage those funds because obviously there are people wanting to support Slackware and people still using it. I mean, I have never used it seriously. I've tried it out and it's a bit old school, isn't it? But the good thing is it hasn't changed if you like that sort of thing. I know that we've got listeners who really like it, um, but I don't know if you two ever used Slackware. Nope. Only as some challenge, I think, years and years ago. <laughs> yeah. Only as a dare. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's, you're right, it's a hugely important distribution. And, you, you know, there's a certain kind of, and this isn't a criticism, but there's a certain kind of person that, you know, maybe Arch has taken some of this, but like to say that they use Slackware and people use Slackware before they used everything else. And they still stick with it. And I think you can see in the response to um, his post, you know, it's like 11 pages long now, Um Mostly, it seems, with people wanting to support him, how hugely important it still is. Yeah, well, hopefully people will support him and the project will continue. Um, let's talk about Elementary OS then. They've received a large donation that's anonymous, and that has allowed them to take on a second person full-time, Cassidy, who was working part-time on it. But he's left System76 now to work on Elementary full-time, which is good news, isn't it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, it's a very small project and they seem to be quite popular. They seem to be doing good work and building an entire ecosystem around a Linux distribution, not just pushing together a bunch of packages and shoving it out the door. They have their own design philosophy. They have their own app store. They have their own frameworks for building applications that go in the app store. So there's a lot of work there that needs doing. And um, I think him being able to spend more time on it of his you know, day job doing it, I think will be great for the project, maybe accelerate it uh, a little bit more. Do I detect a hint of, um, I don't know, looking down on it as, you know, you two both work for Canonical as like, you know, the proper distro Ubuntu, and this is just a derivative, one of the many derivatives? No, not at all. We are very proud of the fact that other people take what we have made and build something else out of it. You look at the popularity of all the derivatives of Ubuntu, like name three, like Mint, Elementary, Zorin, 
are all hugely popular and they're built upon a foundation of Ubuntu. And if Ubuntu wasn't there, you know, they, they may not exist. They may have built off of something else like Debian or maybe Slackware. But, um, the fact that they had the ability to build on top of Ubuntu is great. And the fact they exist is great. And, uh, I have no bad words to say about elementary, I'm afraid. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the fact that there's there are more distros out there and they've all got a unique kind of take on things that it adds to the melting pot of ideas that of things that we like and take out of linux distributions yeah we've had um dan at uh, some of our sprints before now some of our community events and uh you know talking to him about what their expectations are and what their requirements for app developers are it it that that feedback from someone who's downstream from us has helped us to mold our project. So we we certainly take feedback from people who, who are downstream. We don't look down on them at all. Fair enough. Well, they are not the only project that has had a bit of money thrown at them. There's uh, this mysterious handshake.org has appeared, and they've dished out $10 million to various FOSS projects, including GNOME and GIMP. Uh, but there are, um, we were talking just before we started about this. Uh, we should have saved it really, but we were talking about how it's uh, all based around initial coin offerings, ICOs, isn't it? Um, this handshake.org thing, uh, which, I don't know, is it a bit dodgy? The first thing I heard about it was the donations that they were giving. But then the next thing I hear about it is the vast swathe of um, spam that I'm getting on IRC, on my fr- on Freenode IRC, from people, trolls, who don't like this direction and don't like the fact that um, Handshake and private internet access are entwined with uh, Freenode. Now, yeah, some of it is trolling, but it is really irritating. But it's also uh, raised my awareness of this project. I would not have known it about it if it weren't for these trolls posting spam comments all over Freenode. So yeah, well done. Yeah, in theory, it sounds quite good, doesn't it? Decentralized certificates and DNS, well, a kind of DNS replacement that is completely peer-to-peer. But they've got to fund it somehow and they're doing it the way everyone funds things. Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. So for something that's so new, where did all this money come from that they're now throwing at open source projects? That's the big question, isn't it? Yeah. The million dollar question. Well, the $10 million question. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Do you just say, well, it's fair enough if it's coming from venture capital or if it's coming from people being scammed by an ICO, does it really matter as long as that money comes to uh, do good things? Or I don't know, like in Islam, they have uh, this idea of money being haram. Like if it's come from, uh, you know, if you rob a bank or whatever, and then even if you give that to charity, then like that money is sort of tainted. So I don't know. Does it really matter where the money comes from if it ultimately does something good? Oh, that's a good question for a Monday night. <laughs> well, there's quite a significant list of projects that have received some of that 10 million. Um, you know, other projects, not just um, GNOME, GIMP, Free Software Foundation, FFmpeg, um, but also hack spaces like Noisebridge and the Tor project and Software Freedom Conservancy, all they all sound very worthy recipients of these funds. So I wouldn't deny any of those projects access to these funds if someone's willing to give them to them. Yeah, EFF as well, of course. So yeah, it's, it seems to be a, just a list of who's who of um, cool people and cool organizations, really. So yeah, 
Well, it's, it's got to be good, I think, even if uh, we don't know exactly where that money's come from. Um, <laughs> as long as they actually do get the money and as long as it's not just resting in their account or whatever. It'll just be a Bitcoin address. Yeah, probably. Um, all right, well, uh, there's been a bit of a storm kicked up over the last day or so about Gnarum possibly getting rid of themes. And this was on uh, Sam Hewitt's blog. He's a Gnarum developer. And he has basically said that it's time to move away from themes because it just breaks stuff. And the way that Gnome is put together means that you can't really have themes and it's not like it used to be back in the good old days. And the quote that everyone seems to be pulling from this blog post is, I would rather see Gnome evolve as a platform and become a little less developer hostile by dropping support for third-party themes than stagnate. Um, that doesn't look good for... Uh, your employers does it because the whole point of ubuntu uh 1710 coming out was that it wasn't just vanilla stock gnome it was it had its own visual identity and if this happens then that's going to go away isn't it i wouldn't say that was the whole point of 1710 Uh, I, i would say it was a um certainly on the feature list uh having uh a unique uh theme that was ubuntu centric um I, I'm conflicted about this because having been involved in the first iteration of that theme on Ubuntu, we had a hackfest in London uh, where we sat around trying to crowbar an Ubuntu look into the GNOME desktop. Uh, so that's GDM and GTK and the shell. That was really painful. GNOME is not designed to be themed these days. It's it's just not built to be themed. So I can completely see the argument why you should stop doing it because it feels like the GNOME project have an idea for what the visual identity for GNOME shell and GTK and GDM should be. And that's what you should take and you should use it in that way, in the same way that elementary have an idea for what their visual design and their visual identity is. And OS 10 does and Windows 10 does and Android does and every other platform does. Um, but equally, users are the kind of people who like to tweak themes. They, they want to fill around with stuff. And, you know, so you look at the proliferation of desktops and then within those, the proliferation of themes within those desktops and communities who do stuff like build conky themes and, you know, all the kind of stuff like nerdy users like to do in order to fettle the desktop. I think it would be sad if that went away. Um, but equally, um, it's difficult to support all those different themes. I also thought that even even though it was implied that it might be an ideal that themes are dropped, it, it's not the only solution. The problem described in Sam's blog post is is that it breaks so many things and makes life difficult for developers. And I don't see why the two are mutually exclusive. I don't see why GNOME can't have a, a, a theming engine that doesn't break things. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's that's going to take a major amount of design um, and I'm, I'm sure we don't want to go through that again breaking things but at the same time it's it, it's probably something that has to happen if the breaking is going to stop which is ultimately going to give everyone a much worse experience right and i know during the the challenging time of building an ubuntu theme i know some of the people who are building on it had occasions where you know you fiddle with the theme and you get mm. to a situation where you can't even launch the shell or you can't even launch GDM. So you can't get back into your computer to undo what you did just because it, you've fiddled with a bit of CSS or 
something you know fundamental to the way the the screen is drawn yeah um it's 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 just not constructed in a way that that makes that easy or possible it's not like you can just drop a theme in a directory there's a lot of fundamental parts you have to touch in order to make this work and it's not documented anywhere that i've ever seen um we had to go through and edit CSS files and search and replace and find color codes and, and trial and error in order to get a theme built. It was, it was a real baptism of fire, uh, to get that working. And I can see why they might want that to go away. Yeah. But what about this point that Sam makes in this blog post that, um, all these distros that implement GNOME or Plasma or whatever are taking, uh, well, they are downstream is what he says. And so they're taking this upstream thing and changing it. And he argues that they shouldn't. They should just respect what it has done and just ship the completely vanilla experience of that. The likes of Debian do that, for example. Certainly with XFCE, you get that horrible like default XFCE experience and similar with GNOME. And he's arguing that you should do that and you shouldn't be trying to give it a visual identity. What do you think about that? I mean, that, that just seems a bit spurious to me. Personally, I, I disagree with that. I mean, I'm someone who ages ago spent a long time getting my computer to work how I want it to. And I can't imagine accepting somebody else's defaults for the way that that should be, even if it's just something as cosmetic as, you know, the colours on the screen. It's also that I don't particularly trust open source free software designers. Um, You know, even Apple can't get it right. And I don't know how many thousands of people they'll have on on design. And it's the kind of thing that I, th- I think needs to be open to interpretation and other ideas, and, and have a have a system for allowing people to do that and experiment with that. You know, it's why there's still so many desktops. It does smack a little of you know how dare you change the thing we did? What we made was right, and you're making it wrong. Um, which you know, it, it's not as clear cut as that. You know, right for you is 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 wrong for me uh, because i like my toolbar at the top and you like yours at the bottom and i like mine dark theme you like yours light it's it's very difficult to um to say that you think people should use the way the, the software in the way that you have designed it and no other way without people just saying well i just won't use your software then hmm. but that's the whole gnome thing isn't it like they don't want you to configure it you have to install separate tools to even do the most basic configuration in there. It's the complete polar opposite of Plasma. And why I would be much more inclined if I moved away from XFC to go to Plasma, because you can make it exactly what you want. I could make it look exactly like Windows XP, like I have um, XFCE looking. Or you can even get docs going on and make it look like Unity or GNOME or whatever. And I mean, that's why... You use it, Graham. Is it, you know that's one of the many reasons, isn't it? And why failing? And most people who use the Plasma desktop is because it is configurable. Whereas GNOME's whole, well, it used to be. I remember back in the old brown Ubuntu days, it was very configurable. GNOME too, wasn't it? Um, whereas now they just want to just ship you one thing and like it or lump it. I, I don't know. I, I think. I don't think that's necessarily what goes through the mindset of a known developer. I think what goes through the mindset of a known developer is here's a small amount of time I have to work on this thing. And here's a giant list of features that people want. Which ones can we work on together reasonably and deliver a final product that's polished and not going to crash all over the place because we've added switches everywhere that break stuff and, um, settings that, 
that we need to keep track of through the whole experience through the desktop and through the login screen and everything. It, I can completely see why features are removed. And some of them are removed for technical reasons. You know, there are things that were removed because the target was to move from X to Wayland. It wasn't because arbitrarily some gnome designer decided no matter what people say that some gnome designer decided to just like draw random lines through features and say that's got to go that's got to go that's not the way it works there's you know rational discussion sometimes they do end up being wrong and things get put back and that's the same in any piece of software you know people take stuff away or add things that you know look at what Mozilla have added into Firefox some of those things people have protested very strongly about and they get removed soon afterwards and I know working at Canonical there are things that we've put in Ubuntu in the past and we had no idea there would be as much backlash as there was and sometimes you just don't realize people are going to freak out about you know moving their cheese or adding a particular button or removing a button or adding a feature um, and I think that's Part of the problem is people are very vocal about saying, you took away this thing I really wanted. And yet there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who never touch that button, never, never use that switch, never configure the system in that particular way. But for that particular person, they're zoned in on that switch now gone or that configuration option now gone. And you took it away from me, Mr. Gnome developer. And people get very very angsty about stuff disappearing. But this is why a lot of us use Linux, isn't it? I mean, it, admittedly, it's just the long tail, but there's a lot of us just involved in the long tail. Well, there'll also be a link to a blog post from, I think it's Yuri uh, Eichmann. I think I've butchered that name, but um, about extensions. And this is only from um, a few days ago. And it's quite worrying. If you use GNOME and you use a lot of extensions, it's it's not talking about removing the ability to have them, but it's saying... Um, that it's not working very well with them and um, they're prone to crashing and taking the whole desktop down and stuff. And to me, that seems like the groundwork of removing the ability to add extensions to GNOME, which would just make it unusable for a lot of people. And uh, again, for what Canonical are doing, it just means that it just becomes a completely stock GNOME experience rather than um, being able to have you know dash to dark and stuff like that so um, if that does happen long term then that that is bad news as far as I'm concerned and I'm so so glad that I moved to XFCE when I did I, I'm not sure like decisions like that would come about overnight there would be for, especially well both for themes and for um, extensions because there are numerous interested parties who talk at all these GNOME events like Guadec where this was discussed and there'll be people from the Ubuntu desktop team there'll be people there from Endless people from Elementary um, all the consumers of GNOME who will relay the opinion of their users and the developers who have to maintain this stuff and if it turns out that a significant bunch of users say actually I really like extensions and you know we maybe we have some data that says how many extensions people have installed and what popular extensions people have. Um, we can do surveys, we can analyze you know, some of the some of the data we have from our users and maybe give that feedback that says maybe you shouldn't do that. Um, but I don't I don't think we're at that point yet. Oh you love a survey, don't you, you've been too far. Oh yeah. No, but I do I I do think it's really important to understand what the issue is. If the issue is that the desktop is crashing and this mm. is putting people off using GNOME and Linux or, and Ubuntu, then that's the issue we need to tackle. It's 
and it's only through actually measuring how pe- how people use the desktop and their expectations we're able to give some kind of objective insight into whether it's worth doing right maybe maybe the extensions could be sandboxed in some way mm. or maybe the extensions could have a a more robust framework that can detect when a you know like uh, chrome when a tab dies it doesn't take down the entire browser just that one tab dies mm. so maybe you know you get a, a a window control that has an x in it or you know a window that has an x in it but it doesn't yeah. nuke the entire desktop if 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 they have the engineering a talent to be able to do that, then maybe that can save extensions and not not have an unholy, unstable mess, as some people think it is. And, and there was a time when I switched browsers because one tab would bring down the whole browser. Mm, yeah. All right, well, let's move on from the car crash that is GNOME and uh, talk about Android. That was released today, Android 9, on the Essential phone as well as a couple of pixels. And uh, they've called it Pi. Yeah, cool name really imaginative i never realized just how important pie was to americans until i <laughs> went to a pie shop with john o'bacon the internet's john o'bacon once and uh yeah they they take it really seriously so i can see why pie is a popular name among uh that part of the planet you never saw twin peaks just what i was thinking a damn fine cup of coffee and a uh, cherry pie was it yeah but uh, there's nothing really new in this we knew uh, from the betas and stuff what was going to be in it um I actually think that when people start using it, they're going to be up in arms, though, because they've completely changed the UI effectively or the UX by making it all gesture based, you know, swipes and stuff like that, which are all well and good when you're using a phone uh, bareback. But if, like almost everyone, you use a case, then suddenly gestures become quite difficult. Something that you lot never really took into consideration with Ubuntu phone, I think. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think that we'll be hearing more about that, people complaining once it actually gets rolled out. But these things take a long time to roll out to people, don't they? So we uh, probably won't hear about it yet. But I don't know, is there anything else that's interesting about this? I I just find it interesting that uh, when there's a new release of Android, Google gets to keep it to themselves and their special devices, their special anointed devices and a few other special parties like Essential and Nokia. And nobody else gets it until a little bit later, which is a bit sad. Well, that's the throw-it-over-the-wall approach, isn't it? That's the result of that. Yeah, but they don't throw it over the wall until long after they've already done the engineering work to get it working on their own devices. It's not a proper open-source project where everyone gets to use it on the same day at the same time from the same repository. It's all done internally in Google, works on their devices, then everyone else gets it. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was on OnePlus phones and Sony and if there was lineage and all the rest of it, but I'm going to be waiting months and months to get it on my phone because I use Lineage and I think everyone will be waiting months. So yeah, it's, it's not a proper open source project. I think that is the, um, the, the, the only way to put it really. I remember arguing with someone at an odd camp years and years ago, calling it, um, you know, I referred to it as open core and they said, Oh, it's not open core, but then, well, it is now at least with all the Google play services and everything. So, uh, yeah, not terribly exciting, but uh, pie. What a shit name, honestly. They could have called it like pistachio ice cream or something. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, I didn't actually read the article, but I saw a headline like 10 better things that it could have been. I don't think anyone would be able to spell pistachio. That's the problem. Yeah, that's true. But it's, what's funny is that you can run pie on the pixel and uh, you used to be able to run pixel on the pie until the Raspberry Pi Foundation got a cease and desist. So uh, now we know why they had to move that away from being called the Pixel Desktop. 
All right, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com, and they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK, and they sell computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1804. And they are a company who cares about Linux. This is all they do. It's not a sideline for them. It's their whole business. They sell a whole bunch of laptops from fairly affordable stuff that's good for a bit of light browsing and email and that sort of thing, all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA graphics. And they also sell a couple of desktops and servers. And almost everything's configurable. That's the great thing. You can change the amounts of RAM and storage and CPUs. So you're bound to be able to find something that fits your budget. And they ship to the United Kingdom, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, do mention us at checkout. There's a little drop-down box there. You can put in late-night Linux, and they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, on to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It is very much appreciated, despite the fact that the Patreon has been shrinking for the last couple of months, presumably because of the extra adverts that we had before and no longer have. But uh, it is, um, you know, if you can support us, then please do. Obviously, if you're not in a financial position to do so, then... You know, I'm not going to force you. Well, we can't force you, can you? But uh, it would be good if everyone, you know, everyone says this, if everyone who is listening donated just one quid a month or whatever, then we'd all be uh, driving Ferraris and Teslas and whatnot. But um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, go to latenightlinux.com slash support for the various ways, PayPal, Patreon and stuff like that. Um, and you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And I'd normally do this at the end, but I'll do it now anyway. Um, the next episode may or may not be normal. I don't know. I'm going to Og Camp. We may record the main stage extravaganza, and uh, that might get put out because I'm coming back on the Monday. I'll be very hungover and probably too lazy to do an episode. So it may be a month before we do a proper episode, but we'll see. Um, right. So uh, on to an interview that I did a couple of days ago. Uh, because it was kind of last minute and there was no one else around. Uh, so let's hear that now. After an offer to come on the show on Twitter, I'm now joined by Wes Mason. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So this was in response to us talking about NPM and also, uh, to some extent, the Snap Store um, crypto mining um, stuff and also in Docker Hub as well and generally sort of user-submitted um, repositories versus proper curated repositories. Uh, I use the word proper there to troll you a bit. <laughs> um, but you have some experience with this stuff. You're not just some random person, are you? So can you explain why you're qualified to speak about this, first of all? So, yes. I mean, I have the usual developer credentials of working with various software repositories over the years. But I also used to work on the um, the Snap Store team at Canonical. And now I work for NPM, working on the registry itself. So I have a lot of skin in the game, so, the game, so to speak. Okay. And so we have been very critical, or at least I have been very critical of this new approach to things. I'm much more a believer in this very old-fashioned way of doing things, whereby you have a repository that is controlled by someone you completely trust. Um, in the case of Ubuntu, for example, that would be Canonical. They control that repository. Mm -hmm. And I know that anything that I install via apt is either coming from Debian or them, both of whom I trust. So 
I don't see any problem. I don't need to check anything I'm installing. Whereas with the Snap Store, I feel like I do need to check who has uploaded that because any Tom, Dick and Harry can upload to it. Yes, um, I like to think of it as a peer-reviewed system. Um, you have the you know, peer of software developers that other people have given some sort of trust over to, such as the Debian upstream maintainers or the software engineers at Canonical. Um, so NPM, I don't know that much about because I don't even know anything about development, never mind modern day JavaScript bollocks. So uh, is that the same as a Snapsaw where literally anyone can do it or do you need to pass any tests to be able to upload to that? Um, well, you need to pass the test of having a valid email account, like with most things, you know, verify your email. But other than that, no, pretty much anyone can upload to it. It's very much like um, other library depo- repositories like um, PyPI, the um, Python package index, or the Ruby um, gems repositories. In that, if if you weren't able to just upload your new library or your fork of a library, then it would make it very hard for other developers to iterate on the stuff that they're working on, and you'd very much rely on people just pulling stuff off GitHub directly and compiling it themselves. So yeah, npm works very much like that. So there are clearly advantages there, but do you admit that there are disadvantages in that? anyone can put in crypto mining malware, for example. Oh, totally. I mean, um, it's been a problem with NPM for years, for example, that we have a lot of Google juice. So, you know, various searches for certain things will often pop up if they're on npmjs.com in the top results of Google, at least in the first one or two. And years before my time, there was an instance where someone put the latest Justin Bieber album up there as a as a software package. And um, that was instantly the top result for Justin Bieber's latest album. And Google got quite angry and made a call through to the our COO to get it taken down. Well, yeah, that's clearly the worst malware possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing then to combat people doing stuff like that, piracy and malware? So the, the first thing we have is a... Um, a set of systems when someone publishes a new package which first checks for smells you know we have a third party uh, um, provider we had a previous one but they decided to um, shut down overnight when they were bought by twitter which made for an interesting outage the next day um, but yeah, we have another third party provider now who will basically do spam spam detection on new package uploads as well as we have our own inbuilt typo squatting um, system, uh, uh, detection where people will try and upload um, packages which are very similar to other popular packages to um, or maybe ones which may be popular in the future you know some hit new startup hasn't created their own uh, their own npm package yet so someone else squats it and um, various things like that. But we also um, recently bought a company called Lyft Security, who are effectively the leaders in um, JavaScript security and JavaScript module security. And they're now the, um, the security team at NPM. And they've put into place various systems for doing static analysis and just general security um, scanning of new packages that come through, looking for obvious smells as to if there's a crypto miner or as with the um, latest incident, the ESLint 
incident, a um, actual malware which was trying to um, pull out people's tokens. And how long did that last? Uh, how long was it available to users? It was available for about, let me see, I don't want to get the timeline wrong, but effectively about four hours. It was four hours during the, the afternoon UK time, which is not inside of the most popular time. The most popular time for NPM packages is when the East Coast of America starts to wake up effectively, or even the West Coast. And... Um, we reckon there was a potential for around four and a half thousand users um, to be affected by that. We found absolutely no evidence that anyone was affected by it and any tokens which were either issued or gleamed, etc. during that time were, rever- were revoked as soon as we figured out what was going on. The, um, the hardest part was trying to have a measured response to the incident so that we just didn't shut down people's um, uh, build processes during that time, similar to the, um, the, the famous left pad incident from a few years ago. And what about the recent crypto miner one? Wasn't that in for a lot longer than that? Yes. So um, there was a crypto miner. I don't know the exact time, but I think it was running. It was um, available for a few weeks before someone noticed it. Similar to the ones that were running in the Snap Store, I think as part of a twenty forty eight game, which someone um, just was an MIT licensed game, and someone just repackaged as their own and added in a, uh, a crypto miner. And that was effectively someone else seeing it and thinking, hey, this is wrong and reporting it. And we investigated and um, and took the package down. We're pretty fast at taking packages down if they smell. Um, they, the problem usually happens is if the package happens to have a lot of um, dependent packages that um, will be affected by pulling them down. What, that, a package that depends on others or a package that a lot of packages depend upon? That a lot of packages depend upon, which usually only happens with um, things like the ESLint um, scenario in which ESLint is used by pff, an absolute fuckton of other packages in the registry. Um, because it's a developer tool, it's used for um, linting your code and making sure it's good. It, it usually means it isn't shipped anywhere, but it is usually running in CI systems or on developer machines. And so it had very good access to tokens. Um, so pulling down ESLint without making double sure that it was a, a, um, something inserted by a bad actor would have possibly produced a lot of angry people. At best, it would have produced an angry ESLint developer in the project. Um, so that's always a, a thing to be aware of when when reacting to these things and also the various automated systems we have in place such as the typo squatting one i mentioned there have been false positives in the past they're generally and we've got it to a fairly good way and there are lots of checks and balances in place where it usually doesn't happen but when you have automated systems deciding whether to revoke a package or do anything else mistakes can happen and people get angry yeah so what Canonical are trying to do about this with the Snap Store is um, these verified publishers getting a green tick or whatever. Is that something that you guys have thought about? Oh, it's definitely something we've had a conversation about. And um, I mean, I'm not going to say it's on a roadmap or anything, but it's, I think it's something a few of us would like to do. It's definitely a good idea. And to a degree, there are a few um, sort of 
blessed publishers who have their own what's called a scope which is effectively a, a namespace within the registry where you can um where um they they have their own sub packages of that namespace and you know that it's coming from them um the problem is is for example in the case of the um eslint um problem is it it was actually someone had a very weak password and didn't have two FO to end on. So they would have been a trusted publisher, but one of their developers in the project got earned and um somewhat a bad actor managed to um put something up that other people were pulling down. And, you know, having a little tick next to your name would probably have made that kind of worse because that little tick is a big flag to people saying, yeah, this is definitely going to be good. Not, you know, there's never going to be anything bad here. Whereas, um, having the balances of like 2FA in place, um, really helps to stop things like that. Yeah. Unless that second factor is your phone and that gets intercepted. Like we've just heard about with the Reddit thing. I don't know if you heard about that. I did. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I really should probably go and change my own password. Maybe before this goes out. Um, <laughs> not that I've ever used Reddit in the past few years. It's um, very much like the 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 angry orange website. It's um, one of those faces I always regret reading the comments. <laughs> yeah, I just regret reading any comments. I was looking at OMG Ubuntu today, and it's just it's just such a shit show. Oh, yes, like, yes. Comments <laughs> on anything just don't bother. Um, so what about your experience at Canonical then? That was a long time ago, was it? So I left during the um, the, the, the the Great Exodus. Ah, oh, the Great Purge. You didn't make it, I see. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I actually chose to jump. I was one of the few people who managed to say, you know what, I think I'll look for a job rather than stay around. And um, it was a, turned out to be a pretty good decision because I really enjoy being at NPM. Um, but yeah, so about a year ago, I think things haven't really changed that much in the um, store. They, um, from what I've heard, they've managed to bring in a new, better CDN and um, they've got this new verified system going on and thank fuck they've got a web-based um, store now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, they've got the ticks on that and they're working on um, the uh, command line one because uh, for me, Snaps are uh, a command line thing. Well, software installation generally, I don't, I haven't used a GUI for years, so. No, I agree. <laughs> Uh, so I, yeah, for, for the kind of technical user, but I think it's important for both to be fair. And especially if you're going to put snaps in your, um, your GUI app store where, you know, new users are not going to be able to differentiate. Um, I don't, one of my other big problems is this proprietary software situation. Um, what's the score with NPM? Are you allowed to have proprietary, um, libraries and stuff in that? Yes, you are. You can pretty much license it however you like, um, from proprietary to MIT, BSD, GPL, etc. If yeah. whatever floats your boat. Um, but you've got to remember that it's just a tabball. You know, if someone wants to look at your secret JavaScript source, then they're just going to download it, untire it, and have a look. I mean, you can do things like um, obfuscating. Uh, your JavaScript, but um, yeah. I think the majority of people have given up on that sort of um, that sort of thing. But with the Snap Store, you've got binaries there, and th- for me, that is one of the the things that I don't like: the fact that you've got proprietary software alongside free and open source software, and there doesn't seem to be any differentiation there. And I suppose most users who are pragmatic don't really give a shit. I mean, recently Opera was um, added to the store, and it's just an easy way to install it. And, you know, the kind of person who's going to be running Steam and Skype and Spotify and Opera or whatever doesn't really care. But I just, 
wish there was some way that it would be easier to sort of switch that off um you know maybe just have two two repositories like you know with debian you've got your non-free um repository or whatever and you can enable that and then be pragmatic or you can just keep it totally free software and not worry about it yeah i mean i'm of several minds of it myself i mean from one respect i um as we were discussing before before the interview i have family and um I have, I've been to the in-laws today to fix their Wi-Fi and my father-in-law is running Ubuntu, he's actually running Ubuntu Matter, and um, he really quite likes it, but installing software can sometimes be a bit of a pain, especially in software he likes. Um, recently he's noticed some of the um, snaps, although he doesn't know they're snaps because they're just in the software center, becoming available and things which he might know as a name, as a brand, so to speak, from other places in life. And, you know, regular regular users, the regular Joe off the, off the street, so to speak, um, they generally don't care about whether the software is free or not. And it can be a pretty big barrier to entry for the average user using um, a Linux because desktop Linux for many years was associated with, well, pull this random file. Oh, it's a, called a tarball. I don't know what tarball is. Oh, I have to run something called gunzip. Then I run make install oh i need to run make build oh i need to run this configure script file now where the fuck is it i have no idea how to run this right back to windows for many years this was the case even with um you know good package management systems like um like uh, debian's apt and yum dnf now etc in place in order to pull down um packages um if something was available for Linux that wasn't necessarily free software that someone wanted to use, it would be a pain in the ass to probably go and get it due to this dif- differentiation in the software repositories between um, f- free as in beer or free as in speech software and maybe even paid software. And that lowering that barrier to entry is definitely a good thing, but I from a philosophical standpoint and a moral standpoint, I wish sometimes it would be more um, more tooted, you know, more, more horns blown to the regular user that this thing that you're using right now, that's actually free software. And here's what free software means. It's open source. And that means that means something, you know, there, there are probably hundreds of people worked on this and put in spare and paid time in order to make it a real thing. And now you're getting to use it for, for gratis. And that's pretty cool, right? Versus, well, I know here's, here's Snapchat and yeah, your, your privacy's fucked, but hey, here's some cool filters. Yeah. It's that is an age old problem, is it? And it's uh, a different problem, I suppose. Or and maybe it's not. Maybe it does tie in with this new package management. I mean, if you look at what Canonical are doing, it is a very, very pragmatic approach. They are solving problems. Um, Shuttleworth never talks about free software, does he? He's always talked about open source. Yep. And, you know, he's all about the the using that for the pragmatic reasons that it is better. But if there's a hunking great bit of proprietary software that does a job, then, you know, he will happily use it. I think he's uh, might have used a Mac and an iPhone or something, whatever, before. 
he's a very pragmatic man and that shows in what Canonical are doing with snaps. And I think that um, we are seeing this divide, aren't we, between um, the purists and the pragmatists. And it's sort of not very good for the Linux community generally, um, is it? it? Well, we're seeing this divide uh, not to get too political, we haven't mentioned Brexit yet, but uh, let's let's mention it now and Trump. And you know, like you, you're seeing this polarization um, throughout the world in in every topic that you can think of. Um, so it's not really a surprise that we've got it in the um, free and open source software community, is it? Oh, definitely not. I mean, people love a shitstorm, and for some reason, even even in a community of people who supposedly share the same ideological philosophical ideals around open source for example it turns out actually a lot of the time we don't share an awful lot else um politically morally anything else and um you do end up with this divide between well yeah linux is great open source is great i like using them but I'd like more people to use them as well. And sometimes the way to do that is to um, allow proprietary software to be used. And like like many, I myself, I don't begrudge someone, you know, making a living. And proprietary software can be a way of doing that. I, I release pretty much any software I make personally for free. Um, my employer um, both produces a massive open source project in the way of the MP- NPM CLI, um, but a lot of the um, servers behind it aren't open source. They're running on top of open source stuff. It's not difficult to, not particularly difficult to run in a registry yourself, but there's a lot of stuff like the, um, the spam detection and the fact that you can have private packages with us that are a paid, are a paid service. And we're not going to just shove that out there because, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably a month of manpower and time goes into making that stuff possible. And someone's got to keep the, the lights on and the stuff running. Yeah. You've got to pay your mortgage somehow. Exactly. So, uh, is there anything else to mention then before we wrap it up? Um, we had this idea of um, uh, the the difference between the, the peer reviewed software repository and the the, the non peer reviewed software repository. Kind of a free for all, really. Um, I think there's a one difference to make between them is I did mention earlier that like with npm or pypi, the Ruby gems, even the um, the the, the Perl software repositories um, for people who still use Perl. They, they all require the sharing of libraries that can move quickly because you need to push patches out quickly. And those patches aren't always going to be tested between all different types of software, which is a big difference between running libraries on your local machine or even on the server. You know, if, if glibc um, gets a new patch release and that breaks 50% of software on your machine, then that's not going to fly with people. Whereas if some JavaScript library, which people use for you know, generating a web form or something has a patch release because there was a bug with CSRF tokens in it. Um, but that breaks half of the web apps, then they have, then the developers using those web apps, building those web apps and publishing them out there onto their own servers. They have a choice as to if, if they pick up that release right away. And 
and whether they change their software to work for it. So there, there's a, a, a sort of stretchy and malleable timeline there between fixing um, for interdependencies versus the um, desktops and servers where you want a stable release. And when you do an upgrade, you want all those interdependencies to work together and not for anything to get screwed up by one thing getting updated. That's a very long way of saying that uh, there's too much software churn and people should be more conservative <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so if people want to uh, get in touch with you to tell you that you're right or wrong, um, what's the best way, Twitter or a website or what? Uh, Twitter's probably the best way. I'm pretty much um, known as First Vamp. That's one S-T-V-A-M-P, which is a very old internet nickname on pretty much everything, including Twitter and GitHub, etc. I see you're a bit of a goth then. I was back in the day, a bit of a cyber goth. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, no doubt you've been to Slimelight once or twice. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I've been to Slimelight. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, well, it was good to speak to you and uh, hopefully speak to you again at some point. Same here. Thank you very much for talking to me. Right, so that was a very interesting chat with Wes there. And uh, it's a good job you're here, Pope, because uh, no mm -hmm. doubt you have a lot to say. Normally you'd sort of telegram me this the next day going, hop, hop, hop. so uh, you must have some thoughts on all of that. Well, yeah, a few. I made some notes. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that I noticed um, you mentioned about the, the pragmatism that Canonical has when it comes to putting software in the Ubuntu software store. Yeah. And what you've got to remember is that comes from many years of trying to help free software developers get their software in that store. Um, so for a long time, we worked on uh, making it easy for free software developers to get their software to Ubuntu users. And that could mean getting it in the official archives. Um, we also created a system of PPAs in Launchpad. We provide free build services for free software developers. So you can compile all your stuff on the Launchpad build farm for multiple architectures, including ARM, x86, and 64 and 32-bit, um, and integrated all that with the desktop. So it made it easy for users to get hold of software, but it wasn't easy enough. It's still cumbersome to discover software and find it and get it installed, even if it's in a PPA. It's still not particularly straightforward. And then there's the fraught problem that what's in that PPA could break your system. You know, it, it could say this is a new GTK theme when actually there's a GTK theme and a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Um, or it could be your favorite audio editing software, but the developer is a bit lax and chucked a bunch of libraries or a new kernel in there to test it out. And then you get that the next time you upgrade your packages from that PPA. So it, PPAs were never a perfect solution. Um, and then we had the application review board who were a team of people who were reviewing Debian packages that developers would submit to us. And there, it was a painful process of getting those turned around because develop, de creating Debian packages when you're not a Debian developer is not a straightforward process. So we had a whole lot of history in helping free software developers get their stuff to Ubuntu users. And it turns out people want Slack and they want Spotify and they want Steam and they want Discord. Like, so why would we 
not make it easy for them to get hold of those things. So that pragmatism comes from a history of trying to get the free software to users and accepting that actually people don't just want free software. They want the non-free stuff to chat to their friends as well. Yeah, I didn't use the word pragmatism pejoratively. I think it's a good thing, but I don't think that everybody wants it. And, you know, that's why I think the sort of um, meta pragmatic approach is to somehow split the, you know, the the repository in two and have a button that makes it easy to turn it off, uh, you know, the proprietary stuff like I talked about um, with Wes there. When you click on an application, if you scroll down, there's a thing that tells you whether the license is proprietary or not. So you can click on it and then make that decision about whether you want to install that thing or not. Or if you're, as Wes said, and you said, you don't install stuff via a GUI, you always use a command line. And so, you know, you do snap find or, um, and, and snap info of, you know, Skype. It tells you the license right there. It says it's proprietary. And then you can say, okay, well, I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to install that thing. Um, no, we currently don't have a filter that lets you say only show me free software or only show me proprietary software or show me both. We don't currently have that. But we did recently have a GNOME software design sprint where we came up with some ideas for how that kind of stuff could be represented. So that might appear in a later version of GNOME software. I don't know. All I was going to add is is something that has been talked about so many times before. I, I just want to see a solution. Um, like um, Wes ma- mentioned, we I think we all have family members or have been criticised for talking about specific family members in the past and i'd just love to be able to install something easily or for them to be able to ins- follow my instructions and for them to be in- able to install something and i know it seems like pragmatism is becoming the most overused word in in the world of open source but you know that's just what they want and if it means if if that keeps them using the software that we want them to keep using um linux um, rather than going back to Windows or something else, then I think it's a good thing. The other thing you and uh, Wes touched on was the whole problem of malware getting in these stores and the fact that um, it's difficult because you don't know what's inside the, especially binary binary packages. And part of the solution for that is sandboxing. It's not the whole thing, but part of it is sandboxing and restricting what the application can do. Part of it is that the store does some automated testing to, as Wes was saying, you need to be able to query the package and kind of introspect what's inside it and see if it's trying to do anything nefarious. And potentially we could add further steps that try and figure out if it's reaching out to known dodgy servers or if it's trying to open particular ports that you might not think are, you know, sensible on a end user system. But there's always going to be that extra mile that the malware author or the bad actor is going to go so whatever checks and balances you put in place they'll always go further in order to get their software in the store um and that's been proven by basically every single store being owned in some way by an application that's got malware in it we saw it recently with steam we've seen it with npm we've seen it with all of them basically i'm not throwing my hands up and saying we can't do anything but there are limits to what we can do Right, and has there ever been malware in the official repository of any major Linux distro? Uh, I'm pretty sure that there have been software that's been um, modified on upstream uh, website, the hosting provider of an upstream website, like, you know, a repository that's like SSH or whatever, uh, their upstream software has been modified and that's filtered down through. Because no matter what you think about how great 
the repository maintainers are, and they are great and they do a lot of thankless work, they do not examine every line of code that goes into the repository. They just don't. And thinking they do is misplaced. Um, naive. Positive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's somewhat naive because they don't. Like no matter how much someone might tell you how great all the work that they do is, and it is great, they just don't have time to read every line of code of every package that they maintain. There's some level of trust you have in the upstream maintainer. And what we're doing is saying users should have some level of trust of this developer that has been marked as a verified developer or that they can follow the the source of where this package came from, whether it came from the upstream developer's GitHub repo or it came from some random, um, who knows who, third-party repository. You know, we... We try and enable the users to have the tools to figure this out for themselves so they don't have to trust us. Fair enough. Well, no doubt the audience will have a lot to say about this. So uh, do get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact, or go in the Telegram group. Popey's in there, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are you on Twitter, at Popey? Yep, that's me. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we better wrap it up. But thank you very much for uh, coming in and saving the day as we are uh, two men down. No worries. And uh, yeah, we might well have to have you back on at some point. (laughs) To address all the negative feedback we get as a result of me being on the first time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So as I said in the admin section, I don't know exactly what's going on with the next episode. It may be back to normal service or it may be a weird live or camp type deal. But uh, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham. And I've been Alan. See you later.